It is significant that the first U.S. astronauts, while being trained for their moon flights, were required to give 20 answers to the query, Who are you? Take the same test yourself. Do you really know who you are? Scientists agree that our desperate search leads all human beings to seek heroes and to imitate others and to paste bits and pieces of other people on ourselves. Who am I? Consider this, there's three of you. There's the person that you think you are. There's the person that everyone else thinks you are. And then there's the person that God knows you are and what you can be through Christ. We're picking up Genesis in chapter 30. Whoa, check out that bookmark. I see little Eric uh, Marufo's in my class again. <laughs> yeah, he is, right? He's like seven feet tall. When did that happen? I'm driving down Grand down or up Grand Avenue one day. And I come up to the stoplight and there's this, this guy in this white pickup truck. And I look over and I, re- I realize it's him. Was I wearing sunglasses? And so I just rolled down my window and I'm like looking at him. And he's like, he didn't recognize me. And he starts kind of getting this like, whoa, this guy's mad dogging me. I'm like, what's up, man? What's going on? And then you finally realized it was me. Ah! You ain't a boy no more. You're a man now. She, she texted me about a half hour ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. He didn't eat all of his peas. It feels real good to be here tonight. I got a lot of friends here. I got, a, I got a call this week from John who taught last week and he was just giving me a heads up on, on uh, I wasn't able to attend last week's study so he was kind of giving me a, a, a breakdown real quick just of what he did and how far he went um, and how there was a, um, a natural chapter break um, different than what scripture has it here and as I got into the study I, I, I quickly realized um, that that was true. Uh, but, you know, I appreciated that, that, that call from John. Um, to me, it was, it was like John was respecting this group, uh, just wanting to make sure that, that we were, there's no gaps, you know, t- just taking care of the group. And I remember that um, when I was in my engagement period and we told Mario that we wanted to get, my wife and I wanted to get married here. He said, well, you're going to have to go to marriage counseling. I said, okay, how much does that cost? And then, <laughs> Apparently it's free. <laughs> well, we thought it was free. But uh, 
Mr. John Martinez there was my marriage counselor. And so uh got a lot of respect for John. Um, I, look, I look up to him and, and respect him um, in that way. I know when I started my plumbing business back in 2000, uh, John uh, had pulled me aside and um, he just gave me some, some straight-up good business advice. And I, I remember that. And I remember um, being able to deal with some customers and money and refunds and income and all this kind of stuff. And, and those things that John told me as a young man starting off in business, they were, they were in my mind. They came back. And um, you know, I remember him for that. Now he sends me photos of my family. You know, this guy's walking around with this 20-foot lens. Chapter 29 found Jacob on the run from his brother Esau. And it also finds him obtaining two wives and a conniving father-in-law in in 28.2. Tells us uh, that Laban is actually Jacob's uncle. These stories in Genesis are strange and awkward. Are they not? Well, it's about to get worser. Is that a word? (laughs) It is now. But through it all, we see the plans of God still being accomplished. Through all of the evil behavior and deceit, we are about to see the birth of the nation of Israel. It's easy to look at Jacob and point out his faults and say, What a fool! Or to look at David and say, what a monster. However, I am confident that if God were to write my story on a piece of paper and you were to read it, you would be disgusted. And likewise, I'm sure that I would be disgusted if I read your life account. I'm pretty sure I'm just as bad or worse than Jacob could have ever imagined being. Yet God has blessed me. He is faithful to complete the work that he has started in me. God didn't start a work in me to abandon the work. It's not what he does. And every time I try and run away from the work that he has trying to accomplish in my life he don't let me go he comes after God's purposes cannot be ruined by you by me or Satan himself for God is omnipotent he possesses all of the power every molecule of every ounce of matter in this entire universe in heaven and in hell are at his disposal and they belong to him He is the rightful owner of everything. Rafi, can we get the air? Thank you. God is about to change me from a sinner saved by grace into a non-sinner who will be by his side forevermore, ruling and reigning with him in eternal paradise for all of eternity. That's what's next for me. That's what's next for you. 
no longer sinners. The, the end of our faith, the completion of our faith, faith no longer needed, faith put away. Because the substance of our faith will be ours. For the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 Here Jacob impregnates four different women multiple times resulting in the birth of twelve children. Eleven sons and one daughter. A twelfth son will be born to Jacob in chapter 35 verse 18. So chapter 30 is one man, four women, twelve babies. It's been a while since I've studied Genesis. I've, I've actually studied Genesis twice now, um, since 96. And I tend to forget when I last dug in and, and kind of cracked it open and, and took a good hard look. You just kind of read over it, you know? Yeah, Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Villa and Zilpah and Dan and Gad and... Naphtali, and so all these, you just kind of, yeah, okay, 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 okay. The nation of Israel, okay, cool, what's next? I got my mind blown this week studying this stuff. I, I had to stop and ask my wife, like, what do you think about this? That's what I'm thinking. Let's see how it plays out. So let's look at the players. Jacob is born to Rebekah moments after his twin brother Esau in chapter 25, verse 26. Hanging on to Esau's heel. He's like, what, 30 seconds younger? A minute younger than Esau? Rachel appears in Jacob's life in 29.10 at the watering hole. Leah appears in Jacob's life in 29.23 in his honeymoon bed the next morning. Zilpah appears in Jacob's life in 29-24 as part of a package deal. And Billah appears in Jacob's life in 29-29 also as part of a package deal. So Jacob immediately sets about the business of impregnating all four women. Before we start looking at the offspring, let's discuss Jacob's polygamy. Now, I have to confess that as I was as I started into this, I was, I got mad at Jacob and I was mad at the women and I was holy mackerel, I can't believe this, you know. But God shut me down and he spoke to me. Those things that I shared to you earlier about about me knowing that that I'm just as much, if not a worse of a sinner than Jacob could ever imagine being. God said, what are you talking about, son? You're worse. God, he, he brought me to that point several times during this study. Because it's, it's real easy to, to look at, you know, something funky that someone else is doing and, and you know, point the finger and kind of get high and mighty, like, I can't believe that guy over there would do that. But 
The word polygamy means having two or more wives at the same time. Now, many people in this world conclude that since many men in the Bible had multiple wives, that it must be okay. God must approve of polygamy. Look at Solomon. A thousand women in the house. <laughs> wow. I think of the Mormons. After all, the nation of Israel was conceived and born from the loins of a polygamist. It must be okay. Israel was conceived and birthed that way. It's got to be all right. And by the way, God must also approve of murder. Since the murdering king of Israel, David, is said to be a man after God's own heart. God doesn't condone polygamy any more than murder. He merely paints things as they are, sin and all. And regardless of the sinner's behavior, God's purpose is always done. Nothing can thwart God's plans, for he is God. I am living proof of this concept. I can stand in front of a Sunday school class and we can teach a passage out of Genesis. And I could be completely off my rocker. But if I'm giving out God's word, you think God will not use his word to bless those children in spite of me and what I'm doing? He's going to take care of his children. He'll deal with me later. God's purposes are always done. So where does God stand on polygamy? Multiple wives. Well, how many women did God make for Adam? Just one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes that in Matthew 9.15, says the same thing. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says something interesting here in Matthew 19, 9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who was divorced commits adultery. Did Jacob divorce Leah and then marry Rachel? No. But he did marry another while he was still married to one. So this one applies. First Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over her own body, but the wife does. 
I like to rip that one out of context and use that one around the house all the time. You're mine. You think these polygamist families are without jealousy? You think that you think these four women are working harmoniously in the kitchen baking pies? Negative. Paul writes to Timothy, a bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. Paul writing to Titus, again, of the qualifications of someone who's going to be serving in ministry. The man is to be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Whoa, I'm disqualified. Nobody? No, I meant the kids, insubordinate kids. Okay, bad joke. <laughs> I guess I'm the only one. Oh, he got it. Eric got it. First Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice that wife and vessel are in the singular form. I guarantee you it was a little slice of hell for Jacob having four wives. In fact, if we wait just a minute, Jacob's about to blow a fuse. Now, although it doesn't say specifically I believe these four women probably hated one another. And I believe the hatred is born out of jealousy and competition. Chapter 30, verse 1, plainly tells us that Rachel was jealous of Leah. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Chapter 30, verse 15, Leah accuses Rachel of stealing her husband. Radical how Leah is even his husband, his wife. Chapter 30, verse 16, Leah <laughs> pays Rachel for sex time with Jacob. He's sleeping with me tonight. No, he's sleeping with me tonight. No, he's sleeping with me tonight. Jacob's probably just standing over here going, figure it out. Just let me know. It's like a daytime soap opera or some, some skanky reality program or something. Yet, yet, through all of the chaos, through all of the evil, through all of the madness, God brings forth the nation of Israel. Through all of this. Through all of my past sin, fornication, adultery, law-breaking, drug abuse, people abuse, theft, absolute despicable behavior, me, God saved me and made me into a brand new creature that now serves him. 
That's not a boast. That's just a fact. God did that. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. <laughs> that reminds me. So, so before I got, got saved in, in, 90, in 96, November 20th, 1996, 8.15 p.m., when I got saved, before that, for three years prior to that, I was clean and sober. Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, sir. Narcotics Anonymous. Yes, sir. And so for three years, I was going to these meetings, you know, looked, really it looked like this. There was a coffee pot in the corner, a big coffee can where everyone put all their cigarette butts. And, you know, I'd say, hey, uh, my name's Daryl. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in two years, but it, like, it didn't make sense to me. Like, hmm, I'm an alcoholic. Shouldn't I be drinking alcohol? And there was these people that are like, you know, I've been clean and sober for like a hundred years. And I'm still an alcoholic. It, it didn't make sense to me. Because the 12-step program has no power. There is no power. The power belongs to God. God is the one with the power. The most powerful thing in the 12-step program was me. And that's bad news, brothers. That ain't much power. That's weakness. I remember I was in, at the gym. Because I'm clean and sober, I'm going to be a bodybuilder. In front of the mirror, my tank top. And so I hooked up, you know, got to meet these people and these, you know, became friends with these guys. And, you know, this one guy, Bob Tinker. Anybody know Bob Tinker? He, he still comes here. He's over in the corner, you know, just all wearing some grubby old sweats and he's using this machine. And anyway, I got to know this guy and we were sharing, you know, some machine, you know, taking turns on this machine and we got to talking and. I was sharing with him about the 12 steps, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I did the one step. I was like, what? What's that? He goes, Jesus. I go, oh. So that brother ganged up on me in prayer, and there was a bunch of Christians in that gym that I didn't know about. Fernando Gonzalez, Pastor Fernando was going there. His tiny little brother, Jose, was going there. Chris. <laughs> They all started praying for me, and I didn't know it. And then they ganged up on me and dragged me down to a crusade. I got saved. I went down there to get them off my back. Ended up getting saved. Couldn't believe it. So awesome. Ah, <laughs> oh, so good. 
remember sitting there, and, you know, they give the altar call. This is a harvest crusade, right? Greg Laurie. So there's like 14 million people going down to accept the Lord. And I remember looking at the guy who was driving the carpool that I was with. I'm like, hey, uh, I think I should probably go down there. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait right here for you then. <laughs> and uh, I went down and I got saved. The spirit of the Lord of, uh, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our Lord God, to, conf- to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes." The oil of joy for mourning. Richard, I can hear Richard quoting it. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God took my ashes. A homeless, strung out junkie. He took that and turned it into beauty. No one or no thing can ruin God's ultimate plans. So let's take a look at the happy family. We're going to start in chapter 29, and we're going to, we're going to back it up to verse 31 there. Here we see uh, Jacob literally hated his first wife. You know, I kind of forgot about that. I knew that um, she wasn't his wife of choice. But it says, what does it say? That uh, uh, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Now, there's a footnote in my Bible. And when I look down at the footnote in the column, it says the literal translation of that word in the Hebrew means hated. Okay, so I'm trusting the footnote. Jacob hated her. I wonder why. Got tricked. He got tricked into consummating a marriage with her. Now, how this happened is beyond me. I asked my wife, I'm like, really? Her answer to me was, it was a cultural thing. A cultural thing. What do you mean? What does that mean? A cultural thing. Jacob was tricked. Did he not speak to the woman? On his honeymoon bed? Was he blindfolded and gagged? Did they blow out all the candles? I mean, I don't get it. I I just don't. How could he not know? He dated Rachel for seven years. Like, wouldn't he know what her voice sounds like? Right, so I'm, I'm I'm getting all... I'm writing a grumpy Bible study. And then the Lord spoke to me again. My son, relax. That's my Jacob. That's my people. That's my word.
Scripture indicates that he hates Leah. I don't know how it happened, but there it is right there. I might ask Jacob that when I get to heaven. So, hey, um, how'd that thing happen? So what's a man supposed to do with a woman he hates? Wakes up in the morning, he's like, oh, what? I hate you. Let's make babies. (laughs) Right? Reuben, verse 32. His name means see a son. Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. We're gonna, this is a, a constant theme with Leah. You know, Every time she cranks out a baby, she tells herself, Now he'll love me. Now he'll love me. Now he'll love me. Now he'll love me. I think they do that six times. Now he'll love me. Every time it's nope, uh-uh, nope, uh-uh. It's not going to happen. Simeon, in verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me a son also, and she called his name Simeon. Verse 34, we have Levi. She conceived again and bore a son, and now, uh, now this time my husband will become attached to me. Uh-uh. Because I've borne him three sons. Verse 35, we get Judah. She conceived again and bore a son, and now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she stopped bearing. His name means praise. So, Leah names her children based on the circumstances surrounding her relationship with her husband Jacob. This is at least, at the very minimum, a three and a half to four year period. That's if if she's getting pregnant and giving birth. Getting pregnant and giving birth. Giving pregnant and giving birth. It may be longer. There may be some time in between. A year... Who knows, but it's at least three and a half, four years. That's a, that's a long period of time to be having babies with someone that you just can't stand. Significant note to file. Jesus is known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 37 generations down Judah's bloodline, we have Jesus through Joseph, the husband of Mary, in Matthew chapter 1, following, uh, if you follow that genealogy, uh, that genealogy through Solomon, the son of David. If you go over to uh, Luke, Jesus is also connected to Judah, following his mother Mary's bloodline through one of King David's other sons named Nathan. And you can find that in Luke 3.31. Revelation 5, 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Notice that in chapter 29, verse 31, when the scripture mentions that Leah was unloved, that the verse also mentions that 
Rachel was barren. She was unable to, to bear children or give birth. So now we pick it up in chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. We have a nice little domestic dispute. Rachel envied Leah. Rachel was jealous. The same word was used of Joseph's brothers toward Joseph in Genesis 37, 11. And we, we remember what happened there. That was a fine bunch of brothers. Jacob seems to reach the end of his patience with these women when he's accused of being at fault for her lack of ability to conceive a child. Rachel basically blames Jacob for her barrenness, her misery, and now her potential death. We are responsible for our own lives. Our lives are the sum total of every decision we've ever made. I learned that phrase from Xavier. I had, to, I had to hear it a few times before it like kind of sunk in. My life is the sum total of every decision that I have ever made. Regardless of circumstances. Even the raped, even the abused must decide to either walk with God or to reject him. And the same goes for the kid born with the silver spoon in his mouth. Now look at verses 4 and 5. Desperate women and desperate behavior. What did I do? I skipped verse 3. Verse 3. So she said, here's my maid Billa. Bilha. Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I may also have, a ch- uh, have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. I have never consulted my wife so, so many times during the course of preparing a Bible study as I did on this one. I said, sweetheart, I mean, right here, take my servant, my, my slave. She's going to be your wife now, and she, she's going to have a baby on my lap. And it's, now that's mine. That's my baby now. Weird. She scoops the baby up and names it and says, look, Jacob, I've given you a son. Wow. I wonder how Bilha feels about the whole thing. So we get baby number five. His name is Dan, which means judge. Look at verse six. Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. (laughs) Therefore, she called his name Dan. Isn't that special? Rachel is naming Bilhah's baby. And then baby number six comes in verses in verse eight. Then Rachel was uh, uh, Rachel said, with great wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and indeed I have prevailed. So she called 
his name Naphtali. So, so Bilhah has baby number two. I guess, like, I don't know, literally, like, on her lap? I don't know. Again, God spoke to me at this point, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm tripping out. I'm still kind of trying to figure it all out. One thing I do know is you don't mess with Israel, Period. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Do not mess with Israel. Do not mock Israel. Leave them alone. God's going to deal with them. God had to keep reminding me, just keep going. Don't worry. May not make sense. May seem a little strange. But those are my people, and don't mess with them. Does that make sense? Okay. That's where I'm at with it. Now look at verse 10. Sorry, verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes, so she called his name Gad. Leah pulls the copycat move and steals a play out of Rachel's playbook. She sees this going on over here, and she's like, whoa, I better, I better do the same thing. And so now Leah's maid is given to Jacob as his fourth wife. Gad, his name means troop or fortune. And now Leah is now naming Zilpah's baby and claiming the baby as her own and presenting it to Jacob as though she is providing him a son. Verse 12, and Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Asher means happy. Still, Leah naming Zilpah's babies. Now, verse 14 through 17, we have another domestic squabble. Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to, to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. In verse 17, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Jealousy, anger, bribery. These are the ingredients here. Son number nine, Issachar, 
means wages in verse 17. Son number 10, Zebulun, means dwelling in verse 20. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. Uh Uh-uh. So she called his name Zebulun. Verse 21, notice, after she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And that's all that is said about her. Apparently, nobody wanted a daughter. Nothing is said about her, except when we get into chapter 34. She gets raped by one of the neighbors. And it's, a, it's a mighty interesting story, because she's got a couple of brothers that became homicidal over it. I reckon I would be too. Right? Vengeance belongs to the Lord, but in my flesh... You, you harm one of my family, uh, that's it. I want to I put an end to you. Well, he didn't. Th- these two brothers, uh, I won't even tell you. <laughs> You're about to find out here. But it's a wild story. Now, verses 22 through 24, God opened Rachel's womb. Remember, she was barren. She's... she's She's got a couple of babies that she's presented to Jacob through her her maidservant here. But now God allows her to become pregnant. And she conceived her first child. Up until this point in her life, Rachel has felt reproached by God. Up until this point, she has felt disapproved and disappointed. She says in verse 23, God has taken away my reproach. She was convinced that her lack of ability to conceive a child was proof that God did not approve of her. She was wrong. God's opinion of her had nothing to do with her ability to conceive a child. He was in charge of that the whole time. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor. We are his creation, and he loves us regardless of how we live our lives. That's that's an awesome thought. Jesus loved Adolf Hitler, who slaughtered six million Jews. Maybe more. Jesus loved him. In fact, Jesus hung on the cross... And every one of those murders, Christ paid for. And if Hitler would have simply turned to Christ and accepted that sacrifice, he would be saved. He'd be in heaven with Jacob. Yeah. What an incredible Savior. Jesus loved the men who nailed him to the cross, even while they were in the very act. They're driving spikes through his wrists, anchoring him to the tree. And he's praying to to God, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) If someone's killing me, 
like in the middle of actively killing me, I ain't praying for that dude. Just ain't. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we are in Christ, God has taken away our reproach. If we are in Christ. If I have truly accepted his sacrifice for my sins, he will approve my entrance into his paradise on my dying day. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can take away our reproach. And now, Rachel gives birth to Joseph. Child number 12 in the chapter. Verse 24 Sorry, verse 23. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. I wonder if God decided to intervene and started to allow Leah and Rachel to start having babies to put an end to the thing that they were doing with their, their, their slaves or their servants. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating. Who knows? God knows. But God has this plan. He's, he's building a nation out of these kids. And they're starting to kind of pop out of these kind of these weird wives, kind of a slave, kind of a side wife, you know, last minute here, try this kind of a thing. And I just wonder if God just said, you know what, they're going to keep doing it. Why don't, I'm just going to open up Leah's and Rachel's womb again. I don't know. Just what kind of what it seemed like to me. Much is said about Joseph in Scripture. Joseph is considered to be a type of Christ, by the way. And it makes sense when you study his life. He was falsely accused. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Interesting, his brothers has seemed to learn kind of this lifestyle, this pattern of wickedness at home, kind of, you know, growing up in that house where you got these these four women who basically hate each other. That had to have rubbed off on these guys because now they start acting like that toward, toward their baby brother. The one that gets me about Joseph is that he was tempted in the most extreme way, yet without sin. He was blameless. And Potiphar's wife, I bet she, she, man, I bet you she was pretty. And he was avoiding her, avoiding her, avoiding her. Finally, one day, she, she pops out of the hallway and grabs him by his clothes and says, get in the bed with me, boy. I'm sure he wanted to. But he would not sin against God. And his only escape was to lose his clothes and run out of the house naked. That's extreme. <laughs> Man, I, that, and that's strength. That's strength. I don't know if I've ever demonstrated that kind of strength. I usually just kind of give in to that kind of thing. 
Lord, don't don't let me be tempted. Yes. Right, what's the, the the Lord's prayer? Lord, keep us from temptation. I pray that. Lord, cover my eyes. Lord. He was falsely imprisoned, by the way, for that. She totally lied about it and said that he came after her and gets thrown in jail falsely. Miraculously rises to a position of power and prominence in the land of Egypt. He possessed mighty wisdom and he saved his family from starving to death and ultimately saved the nation of Israel. Joseph was the man. So now there's 12 offspring at this time, but one of them's a girl. God will change Jacob's name to Israel in chapter 32, verse 29. God, Jacob wrestles with God, and at the end of the wrestling match, he ends up with a bad hip and a new name. Israel means governed by God. God changed his name from Jacob. By the way, I'm getting a new name. Lord's giving me a new name. Don't know what it's going to be. Now, double D, that's already me. We all get new names. The Lord is going to rename us. As we're walking down streets of gold, on the way to the tree of life, for all of eternity, ruling and reigning with him, Man, I'd like to start that now. Or was I here? We know that each, of, uh, each son of Jacob will ultimately become one of the 12 tribes. And here we have the start of, the, of 11 tribes. With Jacob's name being changed to Israel, we have the term children of Israel. The twelfth son, Benjamin, is to be born in chapter 35, verse 18. He will be born to Rachel. And we will see that uh, that will be the last child she will ever have. It will actually be her last day on earth. Note to file again. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so was the apostle Paul of the tribe of Benjamin. Something that dawned on me, and I didn't realize it at first, but remember, Paul's name used to be Saul. And we find that in 1 Samuel 9.21 and Philippians 3.5. Now, verses 25 through 44, Jacob decides to separate himself from Laban. Um, I don't know if we have time to read the passage, so... Um, just follow along here as we, as we make commentary. Jacob gives Laban his resignation in verses 25 through 26. And Laban doesn't want to lose his best guy in verse 27. Laban admits that he's been blessed by God because of Jacob. And Jacob isn't even really walking real close with the Lord at this point in his life. God's hand is definitely upon him, but his relationship is questionable. It's almost like he hasn't been born again yet. But God has huge plans for Jacob. Your family, your employer, your clients, your church are blessed by God because of you and because you are a Christian. 
God has huge plans for us. It is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. If you love God, truly, you can't even imagine what God has planned for you. Laban is benefiting from the ripple effect. When you throw a stone in the middle of a, a pond, kerplunk, and it just, the ripples just keep rippling out until they hit the shore. Our lives are like the ripples traveling outward and affecting those around us, either for good or for bad. We affect believers and non-believers. We affect the just and the unjust. Just like when God sends rain, everyone benefits from it. When I am in sin, the people around me are affected. Believers and non-believers. Anyone who's, who's around me. The blast zone. And they are not affected for good. And when I'm right with God, the same thing is true. The people around me are affected for good. Now, obviously, my, my wife and my children are close, so that they're always going to receive that benefit or that curse, if you will. But the, you're standing in line at the grocery store behind someone. They may not even turn around and look at you or speak to you. They are somehow affected by you. That ain't some, some weird new age type kind of a thing. We're, we're all connected by energy. Everything is God. Well, I think you just stepped in some God, dude. You better clean your shoe. You ever meet people like that? It's strange. New age. Laban tries one of his old tricks. Bribery, false promises in verse 28. But Jacob recognizes it, and he is going to scam the scammer this time. Jacob points out the obvious in verse 30. He says, before I got here, you had little. Now that I've been here for a long time, you are rich. You have been blessed because of me. Verses 31 through 34, Jacob proposes to take all of the less desirable livestock from Laban's flocks as his wages for all the years of his service. And Laban agrees to the terms. Let me see, let me find verse 31 here real quick. Thirty-two, let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and the speckled ones among the goats. These shall be my wages. So he chooses the less desirable animals. Spots and speckles on livestock were a type of sin in the Bible. It was a symbol of impurity. When offering an animal as a sacrifice to God in the Old Testament, then animal had to be without spot and without blemish. Read the book of Leviticus. 
It's always without spot, always without blemish. Don't, don't, be, don't be bringing no spotted, crooked leg lamb. You bring the best. You bring the number one, very best out of your flock if you're going to offer it to God. The New Testament gives us an understanding of spots and speckles and streaks as being a type of sin. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 1 Peter 1.19, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That's us. We are to be without sin. We are sinners, but our sin is covered by the blood of Christ. You and I are to be without spot before God. We are righteous before God. Now, it's not my own righteousness, by the way. But I can stand here and tell you for a fact that I am righteous. And that's not a boast. I say that because Scripture says it. Scripture says that I am righteous because I have accepted the sacrifice of Christ. And I have put on His righteousness. And when God looks at me, He sees me through the lens of His Son. I'm not boasting. I'm just stating the fact. Why do you suppose Jacob asked for the spotted and speckled animals? Because he knew he had a much better chance of selling the idea to Laban and that if he asked for the unspotted animals, he's got a plan. Now, Jacob's learned a few behaviors from Laban. Shrewdness is one of the skills learned at the university of Uncle Laban. Jacob figures it's time for some payback. So verses 35 through 36... Laban agrees to the terms, and he separates his flocks according to the agreement he made with Jacob. In 37 through 43, Jacob figures out a way to make sure that the stronger, healthier animals give birth to spotted and speckled offspring, and the weaker animals are the unspotted ones, or Laban's. So, ultimately, what ends up happening here is that Jacob's flocks grew and increased and strengthened in number, while Laban's flocks became weak and small. As a result of Jacob's shepherding techniques, he became wealthy. Jacob not only worked at becoming rich, he also worked at shrinking Laban's wealth. There's obviously no love lost between these two, and they're taking turns at cheating one another for the past 15 or 20 years. And don't forget Jacob's name, what it means, supplanter. One who wrongfully seizes the place of another, one who takes over or takes the place of someone else, usually on purpose. Now, I don't know if peeling bark off of a stick and throwing it in a water trough has any kind of a scientific effect. I doubt it. I don't think that was the secret to Jacob's success. I believe that it was God who made him prosper. Even Jacob himself admits that it was God's doing in chapter 31, verse 9. If you flip over there and look at that. Jacob said, God took all your animals and gave them to me. God is working in Jacob's life even before a real relationship is developed. As I look back on my life, I can clearly see the hand of God in my life. For three years, 
before I accepted him as Savior. Did God use uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in my life? You bet. I had a clear, undrunken mind when I heard the gospel. That's a fact. That's God's doing. I could go on and on. God was, I, I look back now, <laughs> man, God, God set me up for himself. And if you look back in your life, you will realize that God has set you up for himself even before you invited him to be your savior. Maybe your son or daughter isn't walking with God right now. God is still working in their lives. Pray for them without ceasing. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins and trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Well, I'm righteous. Not because I feel or, or am boasting. God said I'm righteous. So if I'm praying, my prayers are effective. That's not my idea or my thought. That's what God said in his word. I take that as true. Like I mentioned earlier, don't look down too badly upon Jacob. After all, you and I are probably worser sinners than him. Chapter 31, old Laban, he's about to take some medicine. That little word wonderful has been worn pretty threadbare in these days, and we speak of a wonderful time, a wonderful person, a wonderful book. And we apply the word to a thousand things entirely unworthy of it. But I would give the word its rightful place as set forth in God's word. The prophet Isaiah said concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, his name shall be called wonderful. Truly, he was wonderful in the way he fulfilled many prophecies concerning himself. God, who at sundry times in, in diverse manners spake in times past unto his fathers by the prophets. He spoke to Abraham and provided a nation through which our Lord should come. Then he spoke to Jacob and revealed the chosen tribe of the Savior's ancestry, the tribe of Judah. There must also be a family, so through Isaiah he made known that it should be of Jesse. To Micah he whispered the name of the birthplace, Bethlehem. Through Daniel, he made known the time of Jesus' birth. And in Malachi, he spoke of the forerunner, John the Baptist. In Jonah, he set forth a picture of our Lord's resurrection. And when Christ came, he fulfilled to the letter all of these predictions. Now that is truly wonderful. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us, for teaching us, for showing us right and wrong, for drawing us to yourselves and giving us a desire to live a life pleasing to you. Lord, go before us tonight, this week at work, in our families. We love you, God, and we commit the rest of our week to you in Jesus' name. Amen.